Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmella. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode six, where we're going to be talking about the Raft of the Medusa. Alex, would you like to hear about the Raft of the Medusa? We oui. <laughs> didn't do French. So, as you might have guessed, this is a French one. Just to begin with, most of the information here is taken from a primary source that I read in French. Now, my French is decent, but I realised very quickly that I didn't necessarily know all the nautical terms. So, if there are any errors, I take full responsibility. That's my bad. I can do about the fact that mer, the sea? The mer is the sea. That's correct. That, that's what I can do. So, they're after the reducer. The reason I knew about this was because of the big painting in the Louvre, which I assume is what you knew as well. I knew it was a big painting and I knew there was cannibalism. Yeah. As it turns out, the cannibalism is just the conclusion to a wild story. Wild so, ride. Yeah, so we're in for a treat with this one. The background. Following on from the post-Napoleonic War treaties between England and France over the division of the African West Coast, the French Minister of the Marine sends a four-ship convoy to Saint-Louis in Senegal to re-establish their colony there. Napoleonic warfare, there's a lot of territory changing hands. So it's settled down now. The French have got Senegal back and they want to go back and reclaim it. One of the ships in this convoy is our very own Meduse, or the Medusa in English. I call it the Medusa. I won't do things in an obnoxious French accent too often. Too often. Too often. I will do that. But... <laughs> so she's a 44-gun frigate. It just sounds rude, doesn't it? it? Does. Frigate. She's captained by a fellow called Chaumouret. With a name like that, I assume he's French? I think they're all French. So she's big. She's carrying 400 crew and passengers. I mean, they're going to re-establish a colony, I guess. They need a lot of people. Yeah. But Some she... of them are probably women as well. There are women on board. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Unlucky. Definitely. I think the actual problem may be Chaumouret. He's an interesting choice, to say the least. The Minister of the Marine has made the selection based not so much on skill and experience as on political convenience. That has never happened before in the history of politics, admiralty, officials, Brexit. <laughs> no, not once. This is the first time. Basically, the Minister of the Marine wants to exclude officers who served under Napoleon to show that he's on board with the new regime, which are, of course, Bourbons. Chaumouret is an aristocrat. He's recently returned from exile, and he's been exiled because of his pro-Bourbon sympathies. So he's on the right team, as it happens. Does he have any real experience with driving a ship? He has served on French ships before. The last time was 20 years ago. Ah, uh, technology changes, you see. <laughs> the seas are 
fickle mistress. The ensuing disaster, spoilers, is largely blamed on his reckless command by our narrators, Savigny and Coriard. I'm not even going to try and pronounce their name. That might not be how they're pronounced. That's <laughs> my guess. So these guys are two survivors of the ultimate disaster. and Either that or they're zombies. Or ghosts. Or go- well, if they need to write it down, they need to be able to hold pens. They could possess someone. They could possess someone, that is true. They largely seem to blame it on the captain in their account. The party leaves France in June 1816. The party is in the party of ships rather than... Woo! I'm going to Senegal! (laughs) (laughs) Party ship, party boat. Well, Chaumere is on the party boat because he just wants to speed along. He leaves behind two of his accompanying ships because they can't keep the pace. And if necessary, he intends to sail the Medusa solo to Senegal, which is very much against his orders. Yeah, they don't want you to do that. You stay together for a reason. It feels the need for speed. (laughs) Now we're down to two ships. We've got the Medusa and her companion, the Echo, which is quite a poetic, like like her shadow coming behind her. Quite nice. I mean, there's... All of these names seem very ancient Greek mythology. Obviously, Echo is... You have Medusa. I love me a Gorgon. So, you know, very excited to see how this comes in. We've got the Argus. The other one is called the Loire. L-O-I-R-E. Which I don't think is a ancient Greek thing. No, we've got three Greeks and just a random French supply ship coming with them. I'm not sure where I was going with the ancient Greek thing, but it's quite nice to note. The Medusa and the Echo safely reach Madeira, where they stop for supplies. There's a nice long chapter length, how beautiful Madeira is and all the fun they had there. So I'm Party glad- ship! Party ship! I assume that they are sampling the local Madeira wine, because they have a lot of wine on board, as we will find out later. Then they continue on. They don't actually wait up for the other two to catch up. They must be very far ahead. They seem to stay a while in Madeira. And as they continue round the coast of Africa, the Medusa is sailing quite close to the coast. There are known perils in the area. You've got sandbars and reefs. Those sea monsters that jump out from the map and eat ships. Yeah, those ones. They're sailing close to the coast because it's faster somehow, apparently. I'm trying to imagine the geography of it. But anyway. The noise helps. That's actually what the captain's doing. Standing at the helm is going... <laughs> saying his own name <laughs> on the night of the 1st of July the captain is informed that Cap Blanc has been sighted however what's been sighted is actually a bank of clouds meaning that they're now very much mistaken about the ship's position what a good sailor in his defence it's not the captain who's sighted it someone else has told him that that bank of clouds is Cap Blanc and he's just like yup that looks like Cat Blanc. That doesn't at all look like a child's drawing of a thunderstorm. Let's keep going. It sounds like some crew members realise the error and try to warn the captain, but he and his navigator Richefort make what they think are corrections to the route based on the clouds being Cat Blanc and change their course. So they think they're further along than they are. Do the clouds not move? Or rain? It's a good question. Or change... I mean, this is night. I feel like you can only really justify Yeah, it's night. night. It's quite late at night. 
Okay, I'm assuming what happens next is going to happen quite soon. Yeah. Okay, that's slightly more justifiable. But also, clouds. The Echo realises the error and tries to warn them. They ignore her, so she gives up and sails further out to sea to safety because she knows there are sandbanks in the area and such. And it's like, well, if you won't listen, I'm getting out. Actually, it sounds like she sails quite far away and actually disappears over the horizon and is no longer in sight of them, which I think is a bit harsh of the crew of the Echo. She's just behind the clouds. (laughs) So on the 2nd of July in the morning, the quartermaster and... Okay, no, no excuse. If it's morning, they can see that those are clouds. The quartermaster and a few of the other men do begin to realise... A mistake has been made and they're in very shallow water. Genius. However, the captain ignores their warnings. And it's only when a sounding of 18 fathoms is taken, that's quite shallow for a big ship, that the captain finally realises the error and orders the ship to be turned into the wind to sail away. But he's left it too late. And just past 3pm that day, the ship gets stuck on the bank. Who saw that coming? It's almost like he was warned by many, many people. Even worse, this occurs during the spring high tide, which means the water is as high as it's ever going to be and is only going to go down as time proceeds. And ships are famously round. Ships famously need to be in the water to move. Already, the blame is being pointed quite rightly at the captain. One of the men says... Please do it in a French accent. See, Captain, where your stubbornness has driven us, I warned you. Of course, he says it in French. That's my translation. (laughs) (laughs) Various attempts are made to lighten the load of the ship, but none are successful. When I say attempts are made, I don't know whether they fully commit to it. So, for example, they don't throw a single cannon overboard. Huh. They got 44 cannons and they don't throw any of them overboard. Men like their toys. If you get rid of the cannons, what happens if you get attacked? You eat them! (laughs) So they decide that they need a way to transport passengers and equipment safely to shore. They're assuming at this point that the Echo or one of their other friends is going to come rescue them. So they're not too worried about abandoning ship. But in case they do need to, they're making plans for that. They only have six small launches on the ship to evacuate people, which isn't going to work for 400 people i know some things about lifeboats tell me this is mostly from british maritime law and not from french but you can assume they're mostly similar around this time 16th up to around the 19th 20th century if you get into trouble at sea you are dead there's not a lot of point having lifeboats that can take everyone because you're dead The stories that we talk about are happening. So lifeboats are really sort of there to get people to and from ship to another ship. So you don't need large numbers because that's not what they're there for. They're not for a full-scale evacuation. Yeah, Because they do need to do a full-scale evacuation, though, they decide that they're going to build a big raft as well. And they can use that to carry heavy equipment or they can carry people if they do need to get everyone off all at once. So Would this be the raft of the Medusa? This would be the raft of the Medusa. Name drop. Um, (laughs) They construct it out of scavenged bits of the ship. They take down some of the masts to build it, rightly thinking that they're not going to get off the sandbank with the wind. 
So the raft is 66 by 23 feet. I can't really visualise that. How tall are you? Are you nearly six foot? Five, eight and a half, I think. So like a 10 or 11 of you. 10 of, ten of me. <laughs> so for the listeners who can't see Alex, <laughs> we'll have to imagine a person who is about that tall. <laughs> <laughs> that gives us a rough idea of if a person is that, if that's how tall a human person is then that's how many human persons you could fit lying down on this raft. It's given me even less of an idea of how big the raft of the Medusa is, to be perfectly honest. Well, it's designed to carry 100 people. Sorry, how many people are on the ship? 400, but they're hoping to fit the rest of them in the launches. How many launches are there? Six. It's not going to work. The maths does work out very crowded. But they could have just made a bigger raft. And then it would have been less crowded. Or Wait. two rafts. Maybe they ran out of wood. They got an entire ship. Yeah, but if you start deconstructing the ship around you, you've got to construct the raft pretty quickly. <laughs> okay. Okay, maybe there's a point to be made there. Like I said, they're not actually thinking about abandoning ship right now. However, in the early hours of the morning on the 5th of July, it starts to storm and the frame gets damaged and the ship starts to take on water faster than they can pump it out. So at daybreak, the decision is made to actually abandon ship. Just as a side note, I said 400 people, 17 men elect to remain aboard the Medusa, either because they're too scared of the leaky crafts and they think that they'll sink because there are too many people on them, but also some of them are just too drunk to move. <laughs> so everyone else is evacuated on the launches and the raft. The high-ranking officials, of course, take the boats. Of course. According to the maths of our narrators, Vignon Corriard, they've got plenty of space to stretch their legs. For example, the boat taken by the governor and family can fit 50 people and takes 35. See, this is the point I'm making. It's not going to work, is it? Not going to work if you're too selfish to let other people on your boat. When some extra sailors do try to climb aboard, they're even threatened away with blades. So it's not just a case of them thinking there's no space, it's they're actively keeping other people from joining them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And with the choppy seas and the high winds, the launch passengers don't want to risk the extra weight. And it's every person for themselves, not every man for himself, because there are women. Um, are there children? Ooh, they're families, so there might be children. Yeah. It doesn't say specifically. Overall, 233 people do escape in the boats. But that leaves 152 to the raft. Yeah, that's not 400. It's over capacity. It's very over capacity. And underwater. Mostly it's lower ranked sailors and soldiers. There is one woman on the raft. Fun fact. Amazingly, despite all the panic and there are several people fall into the water as they try to evacuate, there are no serious injuries. So everyone makes it onto the launches safely. Okay. So that's the, yeah, doing all right so far. The raft has no sails or means of steerage. So it's relying on tow lines to the launches and the launch is going to tow it back to land. Sure they are. Sure they are. It is supposed to have maps and navigational equipment on board. Later, it will be discovered that although these were promised, they're missing. But for now, they think that they have them. Do they not have a single officer? You would think they'd have put an officer on the raft to lead it. They do have some officers. Okay. And they do have an elected commanding officer okay. of the raft. He has injured his leg and isn't in the best of shape and his leadership declined significantly quite quickly. Yeah. But there is one there. And also they have been promised 
by the guys on the launches that they're also commanding the raft. That's not how it works. Mm. In fact, they do ask that. They call out to them, oh, who is in command? <laughs> and get told, oh, I am, even though I'm on a launch, but it's cool. I'll come over if there's any problems and I'll come and help you, is what they're told. <sighs> also, because they've been preparing this raft for a while, ample provisions of biscuits, wine and water are put aside for the raft and launches. But in the panic to leave, most of them have forgotten and left on board the ship. Guys, that's an obvious thing. The raft has some flour, six barrels of wine, and only two small containers of water. However, the flour has to be thrown overboard to make more room for the men. And as our narrators lament, they don't think to just like tie the barrels of flour onto the side of the ship and get them back out of the water later. So they just float away. Are our narrators on the raft? Yes, our narrators are on the raft. One guy does bring over a £25 bag of biscuits, as in ship's biscuits, not something exciting. <laughs> I genuinely thought you were going to say that they brought a £25 cannon. I really thought they were going to bring cannon. <laughs> no, biscuits. It gets soaked as he does that and becomes a sort of nasty, salty mush. He keeps it, just in case, which turns out to be a good idea, but it is, oh, a bit gross. Oh, I could, I could picture it. Yeah, like this mulched up, oh, salty... Sort of paper mache type. Yeah, like a glue. Ugh. Like salt dough. The passengers on the raft persist in trying to get aboard the launches. Some of them even try to draw them closer with the tow lines, which obviously upsets the people on the launches. They fire some warning shots, and when that doesn't work, the launchers they just cut the tow lines. They're like, nope, that's it, Raft, you're out. Goodbye. Oh, so that lasted long, that we're gonna help. Yeah, they don't get very far at all, actually. They get far enough away from the ship that they can no longer just go back to the ship, but they're not near the coast. So this improves the speed of the launchers remarkably, and they, <laughs> they speed off. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought. They ignore the pleas to god from the raft and the raft is left drifting in the open sea with no means of moving itself or navigating or anything cool cool but first the people on the raft hope that perhaps the launches abandoned them because they spotted a sail in the distance and are speeding off to go and get help oh that's optimistic wishful thinking it soon becomes clear to the survivors that they've been sacrificed for the greater good Oh, that's tough. So now they have a quick search of the raft and find that the promised navigational equipment is missing. I mean, they should have done that first. They should have. Luckily, one of the hands has a tiny compass that's no bigger than a coin. Aww. They know which way north is. But they can't get there. They can't get there. They share out the mushed up salty biscuit. It's only enough for one meal each. It's not something they can ration. That's it. It's gone now. And they all have a ration of wine. Well, at least they've got wine. According to the narrators, the survivors are also nourished by their desire for vengeance. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like that. Which is quite a good turn of phrase. They construct a makeshift sail. They didn't think to bring rope, so they don't have proper rigging for it. It's quite pathetic. It doesn't do much at all. It's sort of just on the back of the raft. They have some powder and shot, so they fire signals into the air, hoping to get attention, but... That doesn't work, so all they can really do now is pray and hope their companions will return. Wouldn't that be nice? It's a very stormy night, they're all completely terrified, and in the morning they find about 20 men have been lost to the waves. 
Our narrators estimate that it might actually have been more than that who were lost because they take the count based on how many rations of wine are taken at breakfast and they think that perhaps some people might have taken some extra rations and pretended to be multiple people going round again with a moustache and a hat on well you have got like 130 now on board so i guess it's hard to keep track of everyone yeah no fair enough yeah. throughout the day a few other men just jump overboard preferring that to the long death that they see in their future and already some survivors are beginning to hallucinate land and ships. That's quick. It's probably because they're really drunk. Yeah, I was just about to be like, oh yeah. Some do choose to just drink all of their rations at once and just be completely drunk. As they are all drunk and hallucinating, the raft becomes more and more disordered. People are shoving to get to the middle. People get crushed to death, fall off. The vessel tilts back and forth in the waves. It's a complete horror show. And that means that skirmishes begin to break out. We get, I think, two chapters of just this long, very impressive, fantastic battle scenes with tactical manoeuvres and these heroic acts. And they're on a tiny raft. I think that there's some embellishment here because I can't believe everything that happens. But they're also really drunk. <laughs> they are. Have you seen a fight taking place outside a nightclub? I think it's something like that. The reason it starts is because a faction decides that they should just destroy the raft. So one man tries to hack it apart with an axe and, you know, someone tries to stop him. That's when the bloodshed begins. Sorry, they've got an axe, but no one thought to check whether they had navigation equipment or food. Well, they thought they had food. No, they didn't. They forgot it. They did forget it. <laughs> they had biscuits. <laughs> so just imagine, if you will, this skirmishes. I won't go through all of the heroic acts and dastardly acts. Of course, our narrators are on the correct side, which is the side that doesn't want to sink the raft. I will, in this case, take their side. I'll say they are correct there. Multiple people go overboard. Some of them are fished back out and then thrown back again. Someone tries to take out an officer's eye with a penknife. The one woman goes overboard, but thankfully her pitiful womanly cries are heard and a brave man rescues her and her husband. Phew. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Help me, help me, I'm just a lady. I'm a poor lady in the water. <laughs> well, you see, the scene is actually so touching that it puts a brief end to the fighting and the responsible soldiers fall to their knees and weep in penance for what they've done. Hmm. Mm, some embellishment here, I think. I think there might be something to say here about how women are being perceived. I'm not sure. It's not quite clear, but there might be a point to make here. <laughs> you say women. Woman. <laughs> well, yes. More than one. <laughs> There's more than one woman in the entirety of France. That doesn't sound historically accurate, Alex. <laughs> I think that you're just putting, you know, modern notions of political correctness on history right now. <laughs> Their penance doesn't last long, and soon the fighting starts up again. More and more men are starting to hallucinate. They see the officials who've abandoned them and want to go for them and kill them, but of course they're not actually there. They see bread and chicken. They see the Medusa sailing by, and as a direct quote, everything seemed to us infinitely more frightening. The next day, so day three. Oh God! <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's found that during the fighting, all the fresh water and most of the wine has been thrown overboard. 
Well, that wasn't the best, is it? Day three. Day three. We're down to 60 people and only one cask of wine between them. I mean, they weren't making the best decisions anyway. And I suppose you can see something with the people who want to destroy the raft turning into people destroying supplies. That is something that happens. People do have this sort of reaction where if I can't survive, no one can survive. But day three. Day three. Is this day three after they've been cut loose or is this day three after they leave the Medusa? Same thing. They don't even... Last a day before being cut loose. No. Okay. At this point, it's a bit uncertain between sources whether we're on day three or day four now. But by day four, the survivors begin to eat the corpses of the dead. Again, that is quite early, but they're all very drunk. (laughs) Well, that's what happens. (laughs) I mean, I've I've had some wild nights. Granted, I've never been on a four-day bender on a boat, but it still not occurred to me straight away to go to cannibalism. I do suppose with the circumstance and the lack of order on the raft. And it doesn't sound like anyone's been murdered for food. No. Definitely like people have been murdered. There's been a lot of murder, but not for food. So that's fine then. Not everyone's eating the dead just yet, but some of them are. And the ones who won't eat the dead is actually more of a culinary thing. They're like, oh, that does not look nice to eat. So Direct quote. <laughs> direct quote. What they do is they lay strips of flesh over the raft to salt it, because then it will be more palatable. And indeed, once it's salted and looks like just any other salt meat, they do eat it. Men also attempt to eat their sword harnesses and cartridge boxes. One sailor tries to eat excrement, but to quote... He could not succeed. Oh, Yeah. On either the fourth day or the fifth day, so the day after they begin eating people, they're able to catch some fish, which they attempt to cook with a fire on a wooden raft full of soaking wet wood. And somehow they manage. The other alternative would be they burn the raft down around them. So I'm going to give them this. They need something. So they have a nice meal of some cooked fish. And uh, probably cooked people as well. Probably. There's yet yeah, more bloodshed that night, which reduces their number to 30. Are they just bored? Well, I will tell you what happens that night. There is some suspicious circumstances where what totally, absolutely happens is a coalition of the Spanish, Italian and Black African survivors totally start plotting to throw the Frenchmen overboard. So have to be thrown overboard themselves by the Frenchmen. Definitely they started it, absolutely. Nothing suspicious there. Nothing at all. Sorry, sorry, can I just check something? What's the nationality of our narrators? They're French. Ah! Yes. Carrying on a bit, they've got some fish to eat for a little bit, they've got some bodies. By day eight, the fittest decide to throw the injured overboard so that their remaining rations of wine and fish will last a little longer. They could just eat them! Ah, well, well, they've got plenty to eat. No, they don't. <laughs> they've killed like 120 people. There's probably corpses <laughs> bobbing all around the water. Got... Oh, yeah, they're not really moving, are no, they? No, they've yeah. got... <laughs> they're, they're fine. So one of the people who's jettisoned is the soul woman. That leaves just 15 on the raft. We have lost 9 out of 10 of our survivors. It's very Lord of the Flies, isn't it? 
band together and maybe more of you could survive. Yeah. And instead we get these drunk infighting and strange factions. People are just the worst, aren't they? And the thing is, this really does contrast with some of our other stories, where there's, like, humanity and decisions. Like Uruguay. Like Uruguay. But, yeah, it just seems to be the fact that they're all pissed. And can we remember that this is an account written by two survivors of the raft who want to make themselves look good? Ooh, yeah. And this is the best they can come up with. I mean, how much worse might it actually have been? Oh, I don't want to think about that. On the ninth day, they spot a single white butterfly. For some, that is a sign from God that they are soon to be delivered, and for others, it's a sign that at least they're getting close to land. That does make sense. I can say in both directions. It's also a sign that they're having a joint hallucination, perhaps? Maybe. Also, sorry, how have our two narrators managed to survive? They're friends. The 15. I sort of had this, oh, they're just our objective narrators. No, they're there. They're doing this as well. Hmm. Yeah. In a very positive light. So on day 13 or the 17th of July, they're rescued by the Argus, which is one of the ships that were sailing with them to begin with. It's actually a mistake. The Argus weren't looking looking for them. They just stumble across them and go, ah, (laughs) it's you you guys, huh? That wasn't French. (laughs) Ah, it is you guys, huh? So all 15 make it on board, although only 10 survive in the long term. Well, so, technically, none of them survive in the long term. No, surprisingly. They're all dead now. But yeah, it is like that. Just a little word on what happens to our narrators afterwards. So, Savigny submits a report to the French authorities, a briefer version of what I've just recounted, and it gets leaked to the anti-Bourbon press. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, so it becomes a real... Napoleon is great, the king is awful kind of thing. I mean, technically... Not really the king or Napoleon's fault, but I'll give a good PR stunt that. It does work. (laughs) Yeah, it was all planned, this PR stunt. (laughs) Yeah, it becomes a national scandal. Everyone's very quick to point fingers, avoid taking any blame. Chaumoret, our captain, is court-martialed. Good! He he receives a very lenient sentence of about three years. So he could be put to death for this, but he's not. Does cover-up maybe come into it? Could be. Do all six of the launches make it back to safety? Yeah, they're all fine. And they're like, oh, we thought they were right behind us. Yeah, pretty much. So the narrative that I have been using as a primary source is published shortly after. It becomes a bestseller, multiple reprintings, different languages. And yet you could only find it in French. Yes. (laughs) I don't think it's been reprinted recently. And inspired by their account, the artist Guirico, he created the famous painting that is the reason that we still remember the story today. The Raft of the Medusa. Very dramatic. Yes. We'll put a link in the show notes in case you want to have a look at the painting. Wasn't that the painting where in order to accurately depict what happened, he was just like hanging out with dead bodies? Was it? Yeah, I think he borrowed some executed criminals to see how they were dead. And I think he visited various asylums to look at how people racked by torment looked. To be fair, a lot of artists hang out with dead bodies and stuff. That's a common thing in art history. I mean, yes. Why do life drawing when you can do death drawing? But don't get your hopes up about the painting because he's actually pretty coy about the cannibalism. It's not vivid in the painting 
it's implied if you know what to look for. Yeah, like the one weeping over the corpse, but maybe he's having a nibble. So thank you, that's the story of The Raft of the Reducer, which I would say the cannibalism is possibly the least wild part of what happens to them there. Three days. <laughs> yeah. Three days. How long have we been doing these recording sessions now? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to our episode on the Medusa. Now that was quite a story. I think I might need a drink. I might avoid wine. Join us next time for the story of the whale ship Essex, when Alex finally gets to talk about her favourite whaling disaster. fresh water and most of the wine has been thrown overboard <laughs> there's a little giggle in your voice I but think, we can work I with think that that's <laughs> casting lots podcast can be found on twitter instagram and tumblr as at casting lots pod and on facebook as casting lots podcast if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more don't forget to subscribe to us on itunes google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.